Welcome to Incommunicado, a weekly podcast exploring communication and the weird and wonderful realm of modern language. There's a special part of communication that's scorned by many, understood by few, but loved by us, and that part is jargon. Using jargon as a starting point for discussion, we want to delve deeper into what communication really is, how we communicate in our day-to-day lives, how we develop meaning through language, and how we can better navigate it. In each episode, we will be joined by a guest, delving into some of the big questions that we have. Why do we use jargon? When do we use it? Could we live without it? And when does it leave us incommunicado? Hi, welcome to today's episode of the Incommunicado podcast. My name's James Burford. Let me introduce myself to you. I am a recent music technology graduate from the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, and now I work as a freelance marketer with a specific focus on managing social media campaigns. Joining me today is James Dellin, Creative Director of James Dellin Creative, a video communication and content marketing business. And with us, as always, is Amy Borchard a creative consultant specialising in HR strategy for the museums and cultural heritage sector internationally. James, how are you? I'm magnificent. Thank you very much, James. How are you? Wonderful. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Amy, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, James. Brilliant. Amy, would you like to introduce our wonderful guest for us today? I sure would. So today we have Troy Cook joining us. He is a professional musician, instrumental tutor, sound engineer and radio presenter. He keeps time and rhythm for Eastern Fall and Happy Hour and his experience runs far and wide. And as the pandemic shows signs of handing back our liberties, he's excited to get back out and gig. Welcome, Troy. How are you today? Hello. Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Well, Troy, it sounds like you're a jack of all trades and presumably a master of them all as well, I'm sure. Let's jump straight in. So we're going to go, uh, we're going to delve deep into jargon, communication and language, I'm sure, throughout the course of this podcast. But Troy, obviously, you have a big background in music and as a musician, as a teacher. With previous musical guests, um, we've discussed the idea of musical jargon. So that would be things that musicians and composers would do to communicate their message, the message of their song quickly. Broadly speaking, this might be the use of a minor key to denote sadness, melancholy, or it might be a high BPM. So a lot of energy uh, and excitement in a song. Thinking of your own work, do you have any examples where you've used these sorts of compositional jargons to tell the story of your uh, music. Um, I mean, the way to sort of describe it, using that sort of like musical jargon, I sort of put it towards two sort of contexts. The first is actually the rehearsal room context, and the second is the recording studio context. Now, with my own work, when we're in a rehearsal room, for example, a lot of that kind of musical jargon, like minor keys or BPMs, doesn't really get touched upon. We tend to use, I tend to use more kind of the idea of feel, so strung or straight. And there's actually, I've got one song that I wrote for Eastern Pool called Out the Beach, where I specifically went into discussing about, right, for the verses, we need a swung free four fill. So time signatures will come into that as well. And then for the bridge, I want us to go into the straight fill. Whereas with recording, because obviously now you tend to put in the recording studio like your songs or your actual art under a microscope. So you're going to write this piece and is in a minor key. We need to put it at this BPM, for example. So really, the jargon kind of depends with my work on what context it is, whether it's a rehearsal room or a recording studio. That's really interesting because um, although we've had musical guests, having somebody, uh, you know, determine or, or rather having somebody distinguish between the the two contexts of um, rehearsal and uh, studio uh, is fascinating because presumably when you say rehearsal, do you mean just the rehearsal room? Do you get opportunity to write in the rehearsal room or do you write in the studio or do you write independently? How does, how does that work? How, what, what's that process like? So, I mean, with my own work, it's very rare we write in a rehearsal room. I've, the both, the bands that I've been in, we tend to write independently. Say, for example, one person may get an idea, they'll bring that to a rehearsal room and then that's sort of like the stimulus so that everyone can grow from that. 
it's very rare example. I can't think of many with the work that I've done where we've actually written within a rehearsal room, just because it at times it feels almost like where do we actually go from this? Okay, someone's got an idea. Where do we take this now? And I think especially now with today's sort of like musical climate with the industry, I think a lot more musicians are conscious of things like time and money and mm. how much they're consuming of that. Um, for me, I don't actually write in a rehearsal room for my process. I tend to write independently and then bring my ideas into a rehearsal room. Yeah, because it's one thing, um, you know, if if all of you know that you're uh, booking two hours just for a jam, then mm. that's that's fine. Like, you, you know that that's an investment that you want to make in your R&R rather than in your career per se. But if you have booked those two hours and you know that you've got a set to rehearse or you, you have got a, a body of work that you're going into the studio with, I can understand why you wouldn't want to use the time to write in that moment. Mm. But... Um, it, when you say that you've brought, when you go into the studio and your art is under a microscope, um, that's really interesting because I've never thought of it like that. But of course, that is exactly what it is. Um, and I wonder if anything sparks under that microscope and whether you determine passages or sections or maybe even just new licks on the guitar that um, help to communicate what it is that you want to communicate out of that song. Do you, How often do you think that happens? It does happen quite a lot. I mean, it's quite good, I think, as well, it depends on influence. Um, a lot of the music I grew up listening to and a lot of the artists we, that my bands would say are influences do have kind of an experimental attitude when it comes to recording. Um so, for example, you know, there's one song that we're recording at the moment with Eastern Fall that we're looking to release at some point. And really, like, the experimentation goes to maybe, instead of coming up with new licks on guitar, maybe translating them to a new instrument, for example. And one really great thing is, you know, work, working with certain artists and obviously working with a certain clientele, I've got access to more instrumentation to add to a recording. And, um, you know, that's kind of well, yeah, sort of off way I'd say that. Yeah, just out of interest, Troy, do you when you when you personally talk about new instrumentation, you, do you um, do you play tonal instruments as well, or are you are you mainly percussive? Are you exclusively I, I, percussive, rather? Sort of percussive and sort of tonal. So, um, latest song that uh, my band Eastern Fall put out, which you can find on our Instagram. Um, <laughs> nice. I was at, yeah, the, the plugs coming in there. Um, I have I kind of sort of went all out and started playing a combination of percussive and tonal instruments so i'm playing glockenspiel okay yeah and organ on there as well it really it's kind of to think about things that are textural and really the way that you that most artists need to approach recording is that you're filling a sound out sure you know there's a reason why bands spend ages you know triple tracking a guitar part adding loads of different percussion adding keyboards even if like a band hasn't actually got a permanent keyboard player because yeah. Yeah. Not really mean, mean the audience today doesn't really want to hear what you sound like in a rehearsal room, to be honest. Mm. Um, well, do, don't they? Or do you not want the audience to hear what you sound like in a rehearsal room? Well, that, that, that's, that's a good flip on that. Very, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with that. <laughs> um, I think, personally, I don't want people to hear what we sound like in a rehearsal room. I, I, when I'm approaching recording a song, I do actually want to go all out and give them a really good finished product. Yeah, I, I, I've, I completely understand that. You know, I was being a bit of a dick, to be honest. But like, no, it's, there's, no there's no reason to be a dick. I find, though, that some, like, from an industry perspective, if you've got insiders that want to, you know, um, scout you, you know, before we came on to recording, we were talking about a meeting, a very interesting industry meeting that your, your band had had, which I'm not going to um, go into too much detail, of course. But... Um, I wonder if those sorts of people are more interested in hearing the rehearsal room or, or or maybe it's not the music in the rehearsal room. Maybe it's the dynamic between you as a band and if they're going to be making some time investments, you know, do they, do they want to see how you communicate with each other in the room and how you can communicate your art to them in a raw setting? Do you think that's something that might happen uh, more often than we think? Oh, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Yeah, and especially... Not only do they want to see like how you'd function in the studio context, but also even though we can't really do it at the moment, probably a live context as well and how we communicate and what the dynamic is like. Because obviously, 
there's only so much music people can consume from a streaming service. They obviously they do want to eventually at some point go and see you live as well and see how you communicate. Yeah. So there's there's those sort of two ends of the spectrum as well. Sure. How did this management find you? So did they find your music and then think, oh, we want to talk to them and see what kind of people they're like? Going back to James's point about you know the dynamic um, between you as a band, or um, you know, did they see you on social media and think we like their image and like the entire package? I've, yeah, it was the latter that you just said, Amy. So they found us on Instagram mm. um, and then contacted us through there, and they said you know they they liked. They liked the latest track that we put out on Instagram. Again, another plug's going in there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all well and good saying you're on Instagram, but what what is your um, what's your tag? Just say it. Uh, it's at Eastern Full. Troy, so what you were saying about like you wouldn't want your audience to see what you're like in studio, so you want them to hear the finished product. Mm. That that's quite interesting because obviously you don't yet have music out on Spotify and the streaming platforms. So actually, what your audience is getting, even though what you put out in terms of those videos, they are a finished product. Yes, it's still quite authentic in in the sense that that is not the official final recording of that song. I, I think it's a positive thing. Um, people have really really enjoyed um, seeing you all in your living rooms like obviously mm. this is all during lockdown context mm. um but you've done really well without putting an official track out mm. um but showing you know the di again like people can see that dynamic between you even though you're all very far apart and you've come together to create a video that shows your music and the way that you work together which yeah. in a way is almost like more impressive i think um right. as somebody like as, a, as an audience yeah, I mean, when I when I think about finished products, it's always again what the context of the actual how we're releasing it is. Mm. It's going to be a, a like our first debut single that we want to put onto like a streaming platform, or do we consider it like to be a lockdown version? So what mm. changes there is like the actual arrangement of the piece, yeah. what how it's going to be mixed, and then therefore like going on to like mastering and how it's mm -hmm. eventually going to be released. So you know. Maybe it isn't the full picture of how maybe we'd function if we were all together in a proper recording studio, but obviously it's an image of like, actually, this is how we work under lockdown conditions. So it's sort of a finished product, but yeah. for a different context. Yeah. And it's very attractive because it shows that you are making it work during lockdown conditions. Yeah. I, I've, I've really loved doing those lockdown videos. Um, yeah. The thing for me personally as a musician is I love experimenting with different percussion instruments. And I've kind of made it my aim every time to do a uh, lockdown video is to actually try and pick up a new instrument and mm. try and play it you know yeah. the second one we actually put out uh, called halting two um i'm actually playing a feeler shoe box with a pair of brushes which is actually great i love it <laughs> amazing I, I i love that kind of um instrumental experimentation like shoe boxes with brushes and uh what were we talking about a week a couple of weeks ago billy eilish's brother used a uh, used striking a match as a snare drum and things like that. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, um, James and I have uh, rediscovered Michael Jackson in the last forty-eight hours, and um, <laughs> he's he's looking more at his um, uh, back catalogue. And I, well, I suppose it's all back catalogue, really, isn't it? But you're looking sort of pre nineteen ninety, and I'm looking post nineteen ninety, and um, the difference in production between uh, something that was, you know. Uh, for sake of argument, real instruments. Um, and then the stuff from the Dangerous album onwards is just like night and day. But what's amazing about an artist like Michael Jackson, or rather, you know, a product like Michael Jackson, a production team like Michael Jackson, is that they, they're they able to communicate his um, style and his... Thi it, it, anything you hear by Michael Jackson is unmistakably MJ. But... Mm there are no two songs that really sound the same. Mm. And um, I put that down to what, what James was trying to talk about, which, which is this musical jargon, like his, his vocal ad libs and his, you know, you, you just know a Michael Jackson um, vocal, you know, whatever he does, like the, the crazy high pitched, mm. almost hiccups, I suppose, <laughs> but like, you know, you know that it's him you know, and, and it will forever be him. And I, and um, I wonder Troy, if you started to develop that, 
side of things for yourself as an artist? Have you have you found your brand? Have you found your uh, sound bite, as it were? Oh well, I'll, I'll say I, I'm not doing any like high pitched he he's or um, <laughs> doing like. I think any, someone's got that covered actually. If I'm if I'm being really honest. Like, yeah, or um, you know, any any wild da- dance moves because um, I think yeah, Amy's definitely seen my dancing at some point. Isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely atrocious. Been on mute there. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, I think I'm not really sure if like I've, I've, I still feel I'm at the stage as an artist where I'm still trying to find what my language is, okay. as maybe like what my sound bites are. I'd say more. I'm kind of like an interpreter a lot of my production style or like even my drumming style is probably me cherry picking from my influences and then trying to put it back in like via a filter which is by myself um you know i mean at the moment a lot of my one of my favorite producers i've been listening to at the moment is probably um brian wilson really and like the last decent full track was me trying to, you know, put all together all like, these little glockenspiel melodies and like layering them up and like trying to texture stuff. Again, it's like me, again, cherry picking and then trying to filter it back into a different product. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, I mean that leads me on to, to ask, well, it seems anyway like you're making efforts and making steps to uh, try and produce or try and find that musical... Uh, calling card, business card, brand mm. identity, if you will. I just wonder how important you think that is for independent musicians, or do you think it's something that's really that's really reserved for um, high value commercial uh, endeavors? No, I, I think um, like the idea of like you gaining like a like a music, your own music calling card. I think it's important for any artist. You know, you want your own identity. Um, you know. I mean, I, I st- when I think of like make, make like making music, I always think of like a quote one of my colleagues told me, which was you know make music for yourself and not other people because obviously mm. if you make music for yourself, like there's bound to be people out there, you know, no matter how small it is, even if it's like five people or five million, they're gonna get something out of it that you're obviously getting out of it as well. Uh, yeah, I suppose there's this idea that if you like it, at least someone likes it, and if you like it, then somebody else is bound to like it. Because, mm. you know, although we're all unique and wonderful and, and fantastically individual as, as people, if you know that you've got, you've produced something artistic that you like, at least you know that it's likeable and it can go forward, can't it? So yeah. this, this branding idea is kind of neither here nor there in an independent realm because uh, at, at, at that stage, it's a case of, um, you know, you're a musician, you're not an entertainer necessarily. I don't mean that like that. I mean, you're a musician rather than a commodity at that point, aren't you? As soon yeah. as you get to the realms of MJ and, um, well, I mean, at one time because, you know, he dead. But as soon as you get to that sort of realm, it becomes commoditized and it becomes a, this thing where um, somebody like Amy would start getting a, rubbing her hands together about the strategy of the um, the brand itself and the how it works. And certainly not to say, Amy, that you're cold about music and arts because i know that you're very much not you know you're very well, actually, passionate about i was about it. to say it all goes back to that point of authenticity sure yeah 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 but continue so no well i like that I, I i wonder if you can pick up from there because it it is about authenticity and what troy's saying correct me if i'm wrong of course troy but what i rather what i interpret by what you're saying is that if you can be authentic at an independent level um and your authenticity is determined by whether you actually like your own output or not, mm. then you can, that's for me seems more relatable than just manufacturing a band or manufacturing mm. a, um, a product. Yeah. For, for the cynical reason of just selling it for, for selling its sake, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at that stage where uh, as a musician, um, I re- this this will probably sound like me trying to be like some snotty little punk or re going. I really don't care what other people think about my output. Um, it's up there just because I want to get it out. Um, and if people enjoy it, they enjoy it. Sure. If they don't enjoy it, then that's their choice, really, not mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I know we're sort of moving away from jargon, but uh, but something that's jargonized to me is uh, there's a, there's a real distinction between. Um, 
a a musician as we understand as the three well four musicians here understand an independent musician somebody that makes art for the sake of making art and uh the other side of that which is somebody who just wants to be famous um because you know there is a popularity to art i mean isn't it funny that um and I'm just waxing lyrical here, but I find it so funny that some people have this desire to be famous for the sake of being famous. You don't even have to be able to play a musical instrument anymore. Like you, um, mm. you just be a Kardashian and like, good for you. But um, mm. the idea of, of the, the distinction between independent musician and someone who wants to be famous, someone who wants to be famous might be quite a talented artist, mm. but they may approach it from the opposite spectrum to how you approach it Troy which is that they are desperate for people to like their music and I wonder what you make of that I wonder if you think that they uh they would go heavy on the jargon in all in order to just um you know produce popular music I mean you know if someone wants if an artist did just want to be in it just to be famous, then that's fine. That's their goal because at the end of the day, as musicians, we we all have ambitions, whether it's been we just want to do music as maybe like a weekend hobby or probably like for myself and everyone else here. Um, we do it because actually that's the career we wanted to make out of it. You know, Obviously, we're now working in the landscape. Well, if you do music, you're not immediately going to be guaranteed, you know, a 15 bedroom mansion and a Bentley and a Rolls Royce, you know, if, and you know, if someone's popular because they want to get down on that jog and they want to appeal to a certain crowd, that's really up to them if they want to do that. And if they've got a really clever team behind it who wants to develop that, then yeah, obviously like I'm in that phase where it's like, I'm not really sure who our audience is. Um, and I'm mostly just doing it at the moment just to put music out there just because that's what I want to do. <laughs> Especially now, and I think during lockdown, how have you discovered music? Because for me, um, I mean, it, it does kind of link to this idea of big brand image or a lot of artists that are like starting out and, you know, like they've got an Instagram page, but you wouldn't find them like over adverts or anything like that. Um, my question is, yeah, my, my, my first question is, like, how do you tend to discover music and what is it that you find kind of pulls you in to want to hear more? Is it literally just the, the track that you hear or is there something about their brand and, like, who they are, the way they come across as well? As well? Or, or do you think they're separate? Um, actually... Not, I guess, one the obvious one we would say now in this day and age is all via streaming services because we've got so much music that's accessible literally in our fingertips. So Spotify would be one of them, you know, going on playlists, pressing shuffle. Mm. One for me that I have actually been enjoying is, um, which I think you guys will be familiar with, is a KEXP radio station, the KEXP like live sessions. So like they're a radio station. I've actually been going back and discovering artists from like a couple of years ago that I didn't know about doing a radio session. So I'm hearing their songs, but also watching them set up and how they interact with each other and doing interviews. That's actually how I've kind of been discovering artists. Uh, one that I discovered was a band called, um, I might pronounce it wrong, they're called Leclerc. And they're mm. sort of like this um, okay. sort of psychedelic funk band that's got lots of funky congas and bongos, which is great. Yeah. That's sort of one way I've been discovering new music. Mm. Uh, it might be different for other people. Uh, to answer very quickly, I, my, my discovery of music recently has been in a lot of research, trying to do this podcast, so, trying to do a lot of research in um, getting this podcast up and running. So uh, when I've just had enough of vocal, I will um, go and find some other music. But I like uh, quite ambient stuff because when I'm, uh, doing my day job and I'm um, doing a lot of design work then um, I find just any old random playlist and I stick it on and that to me is to do with the brand that to me is to do with the communication of the thumbnail actually and uh, the sorts of I'm just drawn literally like a baby to colors like patterns and colors that that's the communication I need for me to start discovering what about you JB for me, it's time. It's it's literally having having the time. Um, there's 
been a great podcast that I've been discovering recently called the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphreys. And there is a big focus on sport and achievement, but it, it looking at it through a wider scope, it's all about how you achieve a high performance life and whether that is in sport or business or, 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 or music or whatever. They've had such a great uh, array of guests. Um, they, they take a really eclectic approach looking at um, high performance. So obviously our podcast has a specific focus on jargon, but we enjoy looking at it through a wider scope and, and exploring communication in general. Um, Troy, obviously today you're our ambassador for, for music and let's say the arts in, in general, mm-hmm. really. Big title, big title. It is. Yeah. This is, uh, this is your, this is your role for today, but looking at our podcast with communication and looking at your background with music and, and the arts, what is it about the arts that make them a credible way of communicating a message or a feeling or an emotion better than maybe words can themselves. What is it about music that takes it one step further? I think because it, it does tap into such a primal feeling that we have as human, human beings, you know, words can communicate so much and trigger an emotion, but we actually have to learn how to say those words first and actually develop it. So, you know, like you say, your first word when you're a baby, like mama or dada, mm-hmm. And then obviously you develop your vocabulary as you go through education. Whereas music does, although music may have words to it, like lyrics, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to actually understand those lyrics, for example, or, you know, it could just be an instrumental piece. You know, it taps in saying, you know, and it's, music goes back to those times when we were, you know, cave people, you know, picking up pieces of wood and carving stuff and banging them against rocks or something more so than we actually learn how to speak. No, I completely I think, understand there. Yeah. It kind of does tap into that primal feeling that we all have as human beings, but also as one makes us linked universally. Hmm. It's funny you say the words, you know, quite rightly. I think a lot of people's first words were mama or dada or things like that. And it's funny that they're quite percussive uh, words themselves, aren't they? Dada, mama. You see what I mean? That's yeah. It's quite, quite an interesting I, I used to know a whole family that the patriarch of the family, the, the grandfather and uh, was great grandfather was called Ted. Uh, and every member of the family referred to him throughout their whole lives as Ted. They never called him granddad. They never called him pops or granddad or any, any anything sort of uh, familial. Um, mm. It was always Ted. And I asked him one day, you know, why do you, does it bother you not being called granddad or, or, or anything like that? And here's that, that, the babies learn how to say Ted before they learn how to say anything else. And mm. so throughout all of their lives, all the kids' and grandkids' lives, that's usually the first word that they said, and it's it's the word that they carry on through. So, mm. yeah, this this idea of percussion uh, as in spoken language is, is really interesting. But, but there's something in music that I always am drawn to, and that's harmonic language. And I think, Troy, your, your insight into not... not having to understand that as a consumer is really good because you don't have to understand it. You only have to observe it essentially, don't you? And that observation almost brings with it an understanding that this harmonic language is like James was saying with the D minor chords, this harmonic language is sad or this harmonic language is joyful or this harmonic language is X, Y, Z. But I would suggest that learning that language is important as a creator Mm. because one of my favorite phrases is you've got to know the rules before you can break them. Mm. Uh, I wonder how you've found that. Have you found anything throughout your learning that is baffling, technical, um, you know, anything like that and and how, how you interact that with your peers? Yeah. I mean, this might sound a little bit long. I just quickly want to go back to you talking about like syllables and how we understand percussion. It's actually kind of, um, reminds me of what a little method I use actually for teaching drums where actually we do something called animal fills where we take animals break their syllables down and we actually transfer that into beats so we tend to use things like elephant caterpillar monkey or dog so it's like elephant four syllables da 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 caterpillar mm. one two three and we can we use that in different combinations and voicings around a kit to like um you know build up the fills moving on to harmonic language i mean yeah i mean there's plenty of musicians that i admire that actually didn't actually understand 
that don't understand harmonic language. Um, but that's kind of become sort of their identity. There's a brilliant anecdote I heard about B.B. King, the great bluesman, you know, one of the all-time greats. And he actually turned around and said, have you got anything you would like to do? And he's like, I really wish I'd studied more music theory. And you'd get some blues people why would you want to study like music theory? Because like you know, doing like these little two note bends, that's like your style, that's your thing. But yeah, there's also like ideas, you know, where you have sometimes, you know, you have to know the rules to break them. There's plenty of things I've found baffling throughout like my career. You know, I started off primarily as a drummer, and I was just so focused on that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to know anything about like notes or minor keys, anything like. That. I just wanted to play the drums, you know, keep time and hit things. Um. But then actually, as I got a little bit older, I wanted to do a little bit more like creatively. And so I had piano lessons for a couple of years and mm. I studied like music at GCSE and A level. So obviously, you know, I'd get the basics like how a clef works, you know, how a scale works, what's major, what's minor keys. And then obviously having the piano lessons actually expanded that. So understanding how a cycle of fifths works, how it orders our key signatures, you know, understanding modes and actually how they can function. And then the thing that I found really baffling was when I went to university and uh, I actually elected to do a jazz module. Oh, yeah, that really knocked me. That really did knock me for six. Um, <laughs> that really knocked you for six, eight. <laughs> yeah, literally. Oh, knocked oh, that was quite beautiful, James. Well done, you. Yeah, they dropped that on me like a drop two voice in. <laughs> no, that was, <laughs> You know, but um, learning different. I mean, what we looked at was, you know, kind of the classic techniques which has like walking bass lines two fills but obviously we looked at actually arranging you know voicings for string instruments and you know woodwind and brass instruments and it was a lot of fun actually playing around with voicings but obviously you know struggled a little while to actually get the hang of those and actually how to write properly for them and you know how do you structure a counter melody what you know knowing the difference between a basic tone a color tone or a guide tone, you know, those sort of things. But, you know, I probably would, would say now that my understanding still isn't that great, but I'm still loving the learning process behind it. It's so fun, especially with my teaching, you know, learning new things as I go along as well, not just the student. Yeah, of course. Troy, Amy and I were talking before we started recording about um, whether the fact that once your brain has taken on so many pieces of, of jargon, so circle of fifths, uh, instrumentation, arrangement, key, clef. Um, do you, do you, do you think that sometimes there is just far too much jargon going around that actually makes the whole learning process inefficient or are there things that you've learned and you're like, you've never used them in your, in your own practice mm. or does everything come together quite quite neatly um, when, like, obviously you've gone from learning yourself to um, to teaching other people? Are there things that you've you've learned and then never felt the need to pass on? I mean, yeah, I I, I would agree with that. There are there are some things that I have I, that I don't really go into. I would say more that like, I don't go into detail with just because obviously I just think it saves time. You know, I'm not if I say again we go back in like I'm in a rehearsal room. I'm like saying, right, I want you to play this chord in this inversion with this voice in. Mm. I'm not going to turn around. So I'm like, no, this is the chord. Literally just play it like this because I'm not going to sit here for like 10 minutes trying to explain to you about a voice chord when actually you could just be getting on with it. Yes, we 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 discussed the idea that sometimes, you know, well, jargon is supposed to be an efficient form of communication because you're summing up a whole concept in a single word. But it, yeah, it's interesting that in your experience, you've also found that jargon can be inefficient and just getting on with the job and just explaining things uh, in layman terms is just a, a far more efficient and, and, and quicker way of doing things. Well, mm. I'd like I'd like to jump in there real quick, because um, in our episode with Roy, uh, he was t speaking about the businessman that sounds like an idiot, or that the, there's a, you know, there's a book that that got a title of of a similar nature to that. And I think in in a rehearsal space, if you, you know, if you say to your bandmates, who nine times out of ten they're going to be your friends, you know, you mm. you socialise with them and you you speak very casually and and um, very colloquially with them. So the idea of being in a room and saying, can you play this chord with this voicing, uh, with this inversion, that's that's the equivalent to me anyway of the businessman sounding like an idiot because you could just say yeah go on like do your thing mate you don't have to use the jargon 
mm. with with your friends because you trust them in that moment that they will make the right creative decision, to, you know, their own creative decision in order to 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 make that work. So mm. yeah, it becomes inefficient in that context. And I think this is something that we're really starting to drill down on now is that the context in which you use jargon is so important because um, it can make the difference between an enjoyable rehearsal session and one where everyone comes out thinking that you just you're a prick basically not 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 you Troy like whoever it is that's using that jargon that well, just, I hope I haven't gone about? out of rehearsal session with people thinking oh he's right oh James then, and I have come out of many rehearsal sessions where James has gone home and gone straight onto the phone to his mom and said James Selling's a prick like I know that because she rings me up and says do you know what my boy's saying about you and I say yeah I absolutely do because yeah. I oh so your mum's your lawyer as well then James oh yeah 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 brilliant <laughs> yeah again like oh yeah it de- definitely does apply to the context because obviously yeah i am going to talk differently when i'm in my bands because they are my friends and you know again you sort of build up that rapport and that dynamic again probably it's different talking about it in a wider range if i'm doing session work for people the lucky thing is so far the artists i've worked with aren't primarily drummers you know they've worked primarily with tonal instruments so maybe they're not even communicating with jarman a lot of times they're like oh can you just do a beat that sounds like this and they're trying to do a bit of beatboxing <laughs> that's interesting um yeah because there's a shortcut to try and express what it is that they want to express in the moment it's not jargon per se but it's um it's a sort of sonic jargon in a way because they don't they don't want to say you know can you hit the kick every one and three and then the snare on the upbeat of the two and then the hi-hat every eight and then like wh- who says that who actually talks to you about breaking down your beat in uh, by mm. drum you know they will yeah, try but- that um beatboxing to to give you a flavor of what it is that they want you to do right yeah exactly i mean that may be you know the session work that i have done it always starts off in a rehearsal room where again they'll do maybe like that type of sonic jargon that you've just described james and then Again, like we went back right at the start, when it comes to actually recording it, it gets a little bit put more under the microscope. And they may say, actually, for this bar here, this section, could you now start putting the kick drums on the upbeat after the beat of four? Could you start putting the kick drum there, perhaps? Or could you actually add an extra snare drum? And again, you know, I think it does go back to that point. Jargon is important, but it obviously changes and manipulates itself, like depending on what context you use it in. So in the studio, you know, yeah, you're definitely getting into an efficient way of communicating, aren't you? Because you, you as as the operator, as the drummer, you need to know what the what your collaborators' ideas are. Yeah. Um, more specifically, especially if you're talking about, you know, um, this one particular bar that leads into a pre-chorus, or this one particular, like even if it's one fill of, mm. you know, three. Th- however many beats of the bar that you you that your collaborators or you want to change what i'm saying is studio it's really interesting that you pick up on the jargon being used in the studio mm. and not in the rehearsal room so obviously you've been doing a lot of recording during lockdown and i my question for you is because when you're in a studio you are very you know strict for time and I, and i'm sure you use a lot of language when you're in the studio that speeds that process up mm. So you're basically using jargon, as you've just discussed, that makes what you're doing more efficient. Because in lockdown, you haven't had that same kind of um, restriction of time. Have you found that the way that you've communicated between yourselves as a band um, has been different? Yeah, I mean, the problem with it is the way I work personally when I'm recording is I do and this is sort of a key thing for a lot of like budding producers and engineers, preparation, like preparation mm. is key. Like I'll literally build a session like the day, like two days before we're going into the studio or even a week before going into the yeah. studio, you know, what's being recorded on that day. Because obviously it's like, look, we've got like six hours here. Like mm. we need to actually be efficient with what we're using um, to the point as well. It's just like, right, I'm going to draw out an itinerary. This is what we're starting with. Right, this hour we're working on that. This hour we're working on that. Right, we'll have a break here. We'll come back and go straight wow. into that. Over lockdown, it has changed because obviously now we've got a lot more time. But um, I still like to keep it quite strict because I think the problem with having too much time is you can become all too consumed and not have any real structure. And I think when it comes to recording as a band, we 
structure is quite important and having that organisation of time. That's mm-hmm. just my interpretation of it. Sometimes there is that idea of having too many options, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. sure. Um, but have you found like the process of actually creating a piece of music has changed? Because obviously when you're in the studio, you can hear something and be like, oh, I really like that. So we'll use that. But obviously, have you had to have a clearer idea in your mind? Um, because obviously you are recording in isolation, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And is it a case of like you record something, you send it over to the next person, they record over that? Um, you know, how has that changed your process of actually getting to a final product? I think obviously the process begins obviously with the person who's actually singing the song and then putting their mm-hmm. instrument down, and then like they're having to communicate with like not just myself, but obviously you know in the band of four, two other people as well. Yeah. And say, right, you need to. And I think also, as well, the good thing is with those bands, we're very honest and open with each other yeah. to the point of, right, you're going slightly off time with the metronome there, you need to go back and re record that part. You're going slightly off key there, you need to go back yeah. and re record this vocal take. And then once that's complete, then getting sent to the next person, right, you're putting your part down there. And then the process just continues, but obviously, like the roles change. So it's like, mm-hmm me being the critique and then me then being the one that's being criticised. So yeah. that, you know, that's sort of how it's changed. It's still kind of there a little bit in, when we're in shit, but often I think it's maybe a little bit more prominent now, like mm. being a little bit more critical. Thing. It's like you can't hear how two instruments sound together, it mm. like in that live environment in the same way. So everything <laughs> feels a lot more official, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, obviously because, you know, I, I obviously I'm, with these lockdown videos as well, going back to these some four again, another plug, um, like putting their instruments together in a logic session and hearing how they sound together and then going, right, I think maybe it would be best if we took this part out that you've recorded and then like sending, again, a lot of it's, I, most of my time is uh, with that, it's spent on Wii transfer, bouncing stuff over. So that's kind of a lot of it. That's how it's changed. That's the one thing that's changed. I'm on Wii transfer a lot more than I usually am. Well, we know that feeling all too well, Troy. Um, we're bouncing down a lot of audio at the end of this uh, podcast. Troy, so obviously we've asked you to, to come onto our podcast because you are such a good ambassador for for, for the music industry. Um, Your shoulders drop because of the weight of that statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you are because, you know, we've... we've we talked about your, your whole journey from learning your instrument to, um, to then starting your own bands and now teaching. Um, when you're in a rehearsal room with your with your bandmates, you might be discussing what key the song's going to be be in, what what tempo it's played at. When you get to um, the studio, you might be discussing what EQs or compressors are being used. When you get to a live environment, you might be talking about fallback and monitoring. Um, and when you get to business meetings, trying to sell your music, you might be talking about royalties and percentages. I've used a lot of jargon there. Do you feel that um, you need to have a spectrum of all of that jargon and language in order to navigate your industry properly or do you feel like you can kind of just get away with it and wing it I think learning I think that type of jargon yeah I think it is I think obviously it makes things a little bit easier I mean in the recording you know in the rehearsal in the recording context you may not immediately know what a compressor is but obviously that's stuff that you can learn as you go along and the, you know over time you can have someone who's there like helping you out with that i think it's more important having that jargon say when it comes to the business end of things you know royalties because the thing is you know not you're not with working in the industry you guys may agree with me or disagree with me on this you're not immediately working with musicians who may have that similar understanding you're working with business people and that's fine they've elected you know they want music to be their main source of income as a business. So it's quite important to know that jargon as well. You know, that idea of percentages, royalties, you know, commission, that type of jargon. Mm. I think that's more important for that spectrum more so than maybe it would have been necessary for maybe the rehearsal or the recording context. Yeah, because obviously you're not, when you're in a, a business meeting trying to sell your music, you're not necessarily worried about uh, whether the vocalist has, you know, ruined their their melody or whatever. Mm. You're, and similarly, when you're trying to write a song, you're not immediately thinking about how much you're going to sell it for and, you know, what sort of yeah. money is going to come in through royalties. So 
there are certain areas there and very sectioned groups of uh, sec sectioned situations and the jargon that is associated with them. We discussed on previous podcasts the idea of in groups and out groups. So those who understand certain pieces of jargon, those those who don't, those who use it, those who don't. Um, when you first started out as a musician, um, do you remember there being any specific sort of pieces of jargon or technical phrases that would just leave you absolutely baffled? I know from personal experience that when I first started learning music at university for the first time, I was like, I, I was just completely in over my head because I didn't understand a lot of the things that people were talking about. Eventually I got over that, but in your experience, are there any, are there, are there any, are there any situations where you uh, felt over your, uh, in over your head? Yeah, exactly. No, definitely. I mean, I mean, when I first started out, I had no clue that, you know, there were groups because obviously you start off quite when you're learning from almost blissfully ignorant. You just want to, you know, get in there and, learn stuff you and just, then you just want to play don't you yeah exactly you just want to play um I f again it was I, I go back to that uh jazz module where um you know because I, I i like jazz music a lot and uh, i didn't i didn't understand a lot of like the terms that went with it and uh when i first joined and uh, again there's probably still plenty of um jargon that i probably wouldn't have a clue if it was said to me um a little bit better with certain things now but obviously when i first went i was completely over my head just because i not, I have no idea what this means. I'm like, oh god, voicings. Uh, I just want to be a, in a band like the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Go so going through that experience yourself, Troy, um, we know that you teach uh, people of all different ages and abilities a range of instruments. Actually, um, do you feel like that has changed or made you more aware about how you teach and like the words that you use? You know, someone who's a beginner, someone who already has an understanding. What was that process like for you? I think, yeah, the thing going into it as a teacher is we have to understand is that every student learns it a different way. And you mm -hmm. will all know that in the chat because we've all been students at some point yeah. for something. You know, I'll get students who will, I may not even have to say any jargon. Like we said earlier, just putting it into layman's terms and I get some students who are just immediately able to do something. It's interesting as well, like, say I might play something and they're immediately able to do it almost like parrot fashion. There's obviously some students where I have to go in with a little bit of jargon, explain things a little bit more clearly just because they need that extra level to help them understand the concept a little bit better. Yeah. So you, ha you have had a few lessons over, like, video conference calls. Yeah. I don't know why I say conference. Over video calls during lockdown. Yeah. Is there a difference in the way that you communicate and teach, you know, through video um, compared with how how you are when you're in a studio, um, more like show. Over yeah, it's a lot more like show, but obviously a lot. I'm using a lot of different teaching materials as well, and then having again, it's darting back and forth between my computer, going okay, right. So this hand here, say like I'm teaching a a drum beat, this hand here needs to be playing that the whole time, and then I actually have to ask, could you just put your camera down so I can actually see what your right hand's doing. The same thing as well happens, like, say, if I'm doing a keyboard lesson, I may need, right, I'm going to move my camera down so I can show you what notes I'm actually playing, but then I also need to see what you're playing as well. Mm -hmm. Then obviously showing them, like, things like, you know, this is how you read that. So, And then another thing that I often go back and do is test them. So it's like, yeah. right, you need to do that, 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 that. Right, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does mm -hmm. this mean? And then that usually they get it within about a week, but then obviously... Yeah. Most times it's like, right, we need to keep going back over this and again well, reinforcing. Yeah. You sound like you're good at like gauging um, somebody's level of understanding. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, the two things that are important, I think both with being a musician and being a teacher, the, I call it um, the two Ps. Mm. Uh, one is obviously patience. You've got to be incredibly patient because obviously I've got to understand that there's students who are not going to be able to pick stuff up as fast as me. And therefore, I need to be patient and give them time to actually understand it. And also, I've been in that position as well. When I was a lot younger and first starting out, I weren't going to pick up something straight away. And the other one is persistence as well. So obviously, like, keep going on and on and on. Like, you know, you have to keep working at a concert to eventually get it. So those mm -hmm. are what I call my two Ps. Do, do you share those two Ps with your students? Yes, yes, I do. I, yeah, good. I like that. Because obviously, you know, I've had situations where my students will get upset because, like, 
you know, they may not pick up something straight. I'm like, well, mm. you're not going to pick up something straight away. Yeah. You, you've got to give it time. You've got to be patient enough that like, you are going to get this eventually. But also, you've got to put the practice and the persistence in to mm. actually get that concept. Yeah. And is this your own, sorry, but is, is this your own thing that you've kind of not made up, but the two Ps? Yeah, no, it's sort of like my own thing I've made up just because I, I, I do. I like it. It's like your I, own brand. Job. Yeah, I won't call it Brad. It's just literally like a bit of friendly advice. Like mm. You know, that's just kind of how I'd interpret it. Yeah, I'm no, not... but it's a good motivator, I think. If I was your student and I was like, right, every time I felt annoyed or frustrated, I, I'm like, okay, well, Troy told me, remember, is patience and persistence, like those words, and the fact it's alliteration as well, like words that are. Yeah, I, th- I feel like they have like a psychological impact. I'll start branding that. Anyway. Thank you, patent pending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patent pending. That's, that's another two yeah. P's. Yeah. Patent pending for patient <laughs> persistence. <laughs> two, two P's. Nice. I've got, um, I'm just um, going to move on slightly because I am conscious um, of the time that we have left for this recording. I've just got one more question for you um, before we move on to our uh, uh, the feature for our podcast. So we've st- spoken a lot today already about uh, verbal communication. I just want to touch on nonverbal communication for a second, especially during live performances. Um, musicians might have to communicate non-verbally through eye contact or, or movement, um, for example, to either suggest when a particular person in the band should take a solo or more specifically when the band should finish a song in time. Um, can you give us any examples of, of how you've had to communicate non-verbally, maybe in a live performance setting, to, to, to communicate with your your um, your band bandmates. Yeah, I mean, like gesture. The idea of like a physical gesture is important. You know, again, going back to live performance, it's important because obviously we look at the role of the conductor. A lot of their things with live performance is based on that gesture with the baton. Um, there's plenty. I mean, certain things that I do obviously is the idea of um, doing a fill. You know. Or like actually really exaggerating my movements. So for example, going looking at them like white, like almost like mad eyes, going right. You need to go to. We're going to this section now. I think that's probably yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously everyone's laughing, but and Amy will probably know this from because uh, obviously she's seen our bands a few times, and me probably looking absolutely demented trying to like signal mm-hmm. her white member. Right, we're finishing yeah. this song now. No, we're going into this section. It's it's a thing. They call it the fill face. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I rarely look back on photos of me at gigs because half mm. the time I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked up on uh, Phil's because I know that you know, fr- from playing in uh, live situations myself, you do rely on the drummer, you, for mm. example, to to determine when you're going to finish a song or when you move into another section. Especially, I presume you may have used that quite a lot when you were in your jazz module. Yeah, exactly. You know. I mean, the thing as well is like looking uh, live with that type of music. Obviously, you're reading a lot, you're, which is developing that other skill of sight reading, you know, mm. written jargon, you know, like that, as James just said, you know. So I'm, pr- I'm praying to the God of jazz, you know. Because um, obviously, with like the way I've learned with jazz, we tend not to use like, um, you know, maybe it written and structured out like classical pieces, more of it's based on letters. So obviously, we're working in sections. So section A, section B, section C, mm-hmm. etc. And yeah, no, that is kind of important because obviously as well, again, that's another one from communication, especially because obviously a big aspect of jazz is obviously the improvisational aspect. Obviously yes. you want to be communicating that the entire time. You know, I mean, as much as it may be nice for a big old drum solo to be going whilst there's a saxophone solo going, I'm probably sure there's plenty of great jazz recordings like that. You know, obviously there's still got to be that communication. In fact, I think there's this brilliant video you can watch of... Um, Herbie Hancock and uh, Miles Davis for Miles Davis gives him the death glare because Herbie's taking too long off solo in. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Also- <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you can't really, it wouldn't be very professional to shout out, you know, during a performance, right, okay, now it's time for the drum solo, now it's <laughs> yeah. time for the bass solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have got to be literally a, uh, a master of communication, both verbally and non-verbally yeah um i just want to pick up on that james that's really interesting that you say it's not professional to say that but i've heard many many uh front people and um many bands actually do they do say that to each other on stage i think the um 
the funny unprofessional thing is like <laughs> like we did so many times we'd just look at each other and be like is it, uh, where, what, what's, what happens next what song are we playing next like you know what I mean I'm just about to say as well, there's actually, there is some examples of that actually being used, but to a really great entertainment standard. One, I mean, well, that's why we did it, obviously. I mean, we were just... Yeah, we yeah were exactly. Band, you know, so. the Jameses did it. Another famous James is obviously James Brown for his song Cold Sweat, where he's turned around to Clyde Summers going, right, you ready, brother? We're going to be like soloing now. You ain't got to do any fills in that, brother. Just groove over it. And then, you know, creates this amazing breakbeat that we've heard in mm. so many great hip hop. Yeah. Because that... You just know it because I've immediately just beatboxed <laughs> it. <laughs> Wonderful. So blues Sorry, rhythm Troy, and B. Before when we spoke before, you were talking about something that you do when you start a song, and you turn around to the rest of the band, and it's your cue. And I can't remember what it was. It's something with your feet. Well, yeah. First of all, I actually look and I think to myself, "Ah, it's a nice pair of shoes you've got." Feet <laughs> that no one's actually going to see them because obviously your feet are absorbed most stuff. Look, one thing I do do actually is for myself. I actually count off with my left foot, like not actually playing something. So almost like bouncing my leg up and down. So well, I've got the tempo. Then I'll count the rest of the band in. So kind of I'm setting myself a tempo to make sure I'm playing it right because obviously. I want to get my own tempo right before I start telling other people via my drums, this is the tempo you should be playing at. That's yeah. good on stage jargon though, isn't it? Because you, you, you find your tempo, you know, you know what BPM you're in. And then simply by playing the drums, simply by doing what you do at um, where, you know, wherever you may be positioned on stage, you're communicating to the band almost. Um, there's so much information that's communicated just by tempo alone, isn't it? You know, yeah. They know what song you're playing. They know where you are in the uh, in the beat. They know where you are in the song. I know you're at the beginning, like that's obvious. But you know, should if, know, otherwise I'll be like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, cool. Well, I think it's time to move on to our feature, um, James. Uh, move us on, eh? How about that? So, Troy, we uh, we have a feature in our podcast, and it's called "What Does It All Mean?" And this is where we ask our guest to present to us a word, a piece of jargon that they know, that they use, that us three may not actually know. So I wondered, from the top of your head, if you could uh, give us a piece of challenging jargon and we'll see uh, whether we can try and unpick it. I mean, I know that us three have all got uh, musical backgrounds as well, so hopefully we'll be able to unpick it quite easily. But let's take a stab at it. Troy, over to you. Oh, God. Um... See, I, I think I'm the immediate one I'm thinking of is just something to do with like drum jargon, really. See if Let's I, go for it. Yeah, that's good. I want to say something like ghost note or something like that. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Mm, I, I feel like, like I should really know this because I feel like it's he stu- you, quite a lot in. You actually stumped. That's that's great. I'm glad. Yeah, and this, this is really unprofessional of me. <laughs> Studied at Royal Birmingham Conservatory. I don't yeah, even know I what know. a ghost note is. You're kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll blame it on the uh, on boogie? the on the on the midday carlings. <laughs> I'll blame it on the boogie, mate. <laughs> <laughs> don't blame it on the sunshine or the carling. Just blame it on the boogie. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So, uh, Amy, go on. Have a go because you've you're suspiciously quiet over there. Well. Well, when I think ghost, I think of other people can't hear it. So it's something between you, yourself, and you. <laughs> so, um, by the look on your face, I'm assuming that's wrong, so I'm not going to go down that route. Um, uh, I feel like the word ghost doesn't have the same connotation as it usually would maybe mm. am i right well yeah you're sort of on the right lines amy you're sort of on the right lines um okay well yeah work off of that james maybe yeah so i, I honestly I've, i feel like I've, i should really do well on this one but I, i'm not going to ghost note for me yeah ghost so something that's not really there so let's like it's it's basically and uh, that's the best way of describing this like a note that is kind of a plan itself really like you know where a snare hit should be but you don't you don't really need to to play it i wonder if 
again, it's very yeah, very very similar. It, it does actually revolve a lot around using the snare drum. Yeah, I will. Yeah. yeah. So for my lecturers, if any of you are listening, I, I did I did pick up a little bit <laughs> in, our, in our drum mic workshops. But well, uh, Dell, you sound like I mean, you Dell, obviously you've got um, a lot of experience in recording and and writing yourself. Um, are you going to uh, enlighten us? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a go at enlightening you because Troy really is the authority on this. But um, to me. A ghost note is better uh, d demonstrated than described. So I have a pencil in my hand and I'm going to pretend that it is a drumstick. And I'm going to try and recreate a sort of technique that can produce ghost notes. And when you hit, and, and yeah, as Troy says on the snare drum, when you hit a snare drum, you often have a very, like there's, there's one hit, right? But to me, a ghost note is... Yeah, allowing that bounce off the skin to add in um, notes that aren't necessarily written, but are part of the groove. So you go from to a kind of yeah, yeah that's it. Does that make that's sense? That's a ghost. So what it is? Yeah, it's a note that it is heard, but obviously it's not as prominent as what you'd hear on the beats of two and four, which is usually where Western music snare drum would fall on. Yeah. You know, uh, it's kind of very popular, like those old, again, those classic sort of like R&B recordings and, you know, a lot of funk stuff is based mm, around yeah. that kind of stuff. It's busying, it's busying the groove, isn't it, to, to yes, give you... Yes, busying the groove, yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah. In, I mean, in my, uh, for my own sanity, as you were halfway through describing the, uh, a ghost note, James, I... It, it did come back to me, so... Uh, oh, yeah, so, yeah, I like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what, I think... Yeah, same actually. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah That's what they call ghost knowledge. Ghost knowledge, yeah. It's not really there, but for the purpose of saving face and, and uh, making <laughs> making your parents believe your £27,000 education is worth it. <laughs> okay, so Troy, so th thank you for that one. I, I reckon we've probably got time for, for one more piece of, uh, from, uh, of, of musical jargon. Do you want to give us another one? Ooh. Um... Flam. <laughs> flam. Oh, these are so difficult to describe. I prefer a flam. Oh, <laughs> very good. No, I, uh, that actually has got me completely uh, stumped. A flam, no idea. Absolutely no idea. Go this, to find a, another drumstick. All right, well. I think James D's got it. What did you say, flam? Yeah, flam. Do you know what, James? Do you want to demonstrate and then we will try, like, demonstrate without saying, explaining? Okay. And we will try and figure it out. So, from my very limited knowledge of uh, drum jargon and uh, terminology, as I understand it, a flam is uh, to do. Go on. Are you going to explain it? Uh, no, no. Okay. He's going to demonstrate, Amy. Give him a chance. Yeah, give him a chance. Jesus Christ. It sounds like he's full on about to explain as, it. As I understand it, a flam is to do with the way in which you hit with uh, two sticks on primarily a snare drum. So if you want to... So, yeah. So as I get it, you, you might want to just have one snare hit like that. But a flam, again, would sound something like this. It's pretty close, yeah. So they're, close. it's almost ghosting with a second drumstick, but you're, yeah. it's, again, it's busy in the groove, to so, me anyway. I was, oh, so what a flam basically is, again, it, it doesn't have to be a snare drum, it can be many other drums. You're hitting a drum with both two hands with your stick. There's a slight delay with your it can either be with your left hand or your right hand so you kind of get this sort of mm. again you know i think probably the best example of you know the use of flams is thinking of drummers like john bonham or dave Grohl, that really big you know heavy sort of rock sound mm. Mm. yeah um yeah but like yeah that, 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 that is that is basically what a flam is a flam Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's episode. And we, we really do want to thank you once again, Troy, for coming uh, onto our podcast to speak to us. Uh, I trust I trust you've enjoyed yourself. Yeah, it's been amazing. Again, thank you for having me on here. It's great. 
honestly, you're you're more than welcome. Um, so once again, we do have a, a variety of speakers on on this series of Incommunicado. So to make sure you don't miss out, be sure to get involved. Amy, would you like to tell our wonderful listeners how they can get involved? I sure would. So you can find us across all social media channels at Incom Podcast. That's I-N-C-O-M-M Podcast. When you get there, make sure to join the conversation by commenting, following, liking, subscribing, sharing, all of those wonderful things that we do across all of those platforms. And if you'd like to make direct contact with us, you can certainly drop us a line at hello at IncomPodcast.com. Yes, you certainly can. If you want to help support the podcast, please head to the website. That is www.incompodcast.com to find further instructions on how to do so. Thank you so much for listening today and we'll catch up with you in the next episode.